The daiquiri. How should a daiquiri taste? Well, personally one believes that it shouldn't taste of rum, it shouldn't taste of lime, and it shouldn't taste of sugar. It should just taste of daiquiri. It is unclear quite who first said that, but if it wasn't Ernest Hemingway, then I'll eat my Quaker Marine supply hat. Even if the quote doesn't belong to him, he certainly had strong opinions on the daiquiri and a strong appetite for drinking them. They had no taste of alcohol and felt as you drank them the way downhill glacier skiing fields running through powder snow. And after the sixth and eighth felt like downhill glacier skiing fields when you're running unroped. So said Thomas Hudson, the distinctly Hemingway-esque protagonist in Hemingway's posthumously published novel Islands in the Stream from 1970. In either 1896 or 1898, depending on who you believe, the American engineer Jennings Stockton Cox Jr. was stationed in the town of Daiquiri in Cuba, managing the properties of both the Spanish-American Iron Company and the Pennsylvania Steel Company. Some reports say that Cox ran out of gin whilst entertaining his American guests and wary of serving the local rum straight up, he added lime juice and sugar to improve its taste. And as anyone who has ever enjoyed a well-made daiquiri will attest, the resulting drink is indeed a taste sensation. Another account has it that Cox requested a supply of the local Bacardi Catablanca rum as part of his reward for accepting an undeniably dangerous job, with yellow fever and war being very real threats in this era. Having observed locals mixing it with coffee, he embarked on his own mixological adventure, assisted by his colleague Pagliucci. Using what ingredients they had to hand, the combination of rum, lime juice and sugar shaken with ice was born and deemed a success. Whichever version is true, it was reported in a 1928 book that the drink acquired its name in a local bar named The Venus, where one morning Cox piped up. Boys, we've been drinking this delicious little drink for some time, but we've never named it. Let's christen it now. I'll tell you what, lads, we all work at Daiquiri and we all drank this drink first there. Let's call it a daiquiri. That was from When It's Cocktail Time in Cuba by Basil Woon from 1928. Much of this is, for the most part, likely true. Indeed, Bacardi has in its possession a recipe for the drink written in Cox's own hand, and one doesn't doubt that this is likely how the drink first came to be called the daiquiri. The dates all add up, the characters named are undoubtedly real, few people dispute the story, and there is a bare minimum of rival theories. In fact, there are none if you eliminate the unbelievable ones. How refreshing, much like the daiquiri itself, I suppose. Harder to believe is that Cox was the first to combine these ingredients, even in Cuba. Bacardi was founded in Cuba in 1862. The first shipment of ice arrived in Cuba in 1807, courtesy of pioneering ice merchant Frederick Tudor. And throughout the 19th century, Cuba had been one of, if not the largest, producers of sugar in the world and lime juice would have been readily available. Cox's original handwritten recipe appears to call for lemons, not limes. However, if this were the case, one presumes that at some point somebody with a little more cocktail knowledge than Cox might have whispered in his ear that all he'd invented was a rum sour. Limes are abundant on the island of Cuba, far more abundant than lemons, and the locals refer to limes by the name Limon Criollo, so it seems far more likely that even back at its inception, the citrus in the daiquiri was indeed lime juice. 
So if all the ingredients to make this drink had been in place for at least 30 years before Cox's innovation, are we to believe that it was Jennings Cox who first put these ingredients together? Many are disinclined to do so. Indeed, if we ignore the use of that particular brand of rum, all the ingredients were in place in Cuba by the late 1500s. Legend has Sir Francis Drake in 1586, fixing up his sickly sailors by mixing medicines acquired from the local Taino and Chiboni Indians, mint, lime, chuchuhasa, tree bark soaked in rum, and a little sugar to make the whole palatable. Chronologically closer to Cox's creation, but also predating it, we have the Canchanchara, an uniced mix of Aguadiente de Cana, a sort of once distilled unsophisticated relative of rum, with honey and lime juice, consumed by the Mambises, the Cuban guerrilla fighters in the Ten Year War from 1868 to 1878 and the War of Independence 1895 to 1898. All of this serves to show us that Cox's invention was no great epoch-shifting jump. It wasn't like putting wheels on a suitcase. And like most of the great cocktails, it was more of a discovery than an invention. Also worth noting is that Cox's recipe was essentially a punch recipe, containing as it did instructions on how to prepare a batch for six people. And with the instruction not to strain the drink, but to serve it with ice in the glass. As such, it doesn't completely resemble the daiquiri that the world subsequently fell in love with. More pertinent to our story is the arrival of the USSS Minnesota commanded by Charles H. Harlow in Guantanamo, Cuba in 1909. The captain, accompanied by the ship's medical officer, Lieutenant Lucius W. Johnson, toured parts of the island and was entertained by none other than Jennings Cox himself, who served his cocktail to the visiting sailors and gave them the recipe. Lieutenant Johnson was so impressed by the drink that he acquired a large quantity of the appropriate rum to bring home with him to the United States, where he proudly introduced the drink to his fellow members of the Army and Navy Club in Washington, D.C. From there, its fame quickly spread. Indeed, to this day, there exists a brass plaque in the club celebrating Johnson's propagation of the drink. It didn't take long for the daiquiri to find its way into cocktail books of the era, and by 1913, Jack Straub had a daiquiri, with a G, listed in his Manual of Mixed Drinks. Susie Root Rhodes and Grace Porter Hopkins listed it with more conventional spelling in their The Economy Administration Cookbook the same year. The first big change in the daiquiri can most likely be attributed to Constantino Regalera Vert, a Catalan immigrant to Cuba who started bartending and eventually owned a bar in Havana known as La Pina de Plata, the Silver Pineapple, now famous around the world as La Floradita. Nicknamed Constante and universally recognized by his contemporaries as the greatest bartender in Havana, he is said to be the man who in the 1930s first created the frozen daiquiri, mixed in a cocktail shaker with mechanically chipped ice. Constante would be immortalized forever as Ernest Hemingway's daiquiri cantonero of choice and whose deafness with the shaker was described by British writer Basil Woon. The drink is shaken by throwing it from one shaker and catching it in another, the liquid forming a half circle in the air. It's worth a visit to Havana 
merely to watch Constantino operate, once again from When It's Cocktail Time in Cuba, 1928. The frozen Dacry too found its way to America, knowledge doubtless spread by returning Americans who flocked to Cuba to enjoy its more liberal attitude to alcohol during America's prohibition years. In 1937, the introduction of the electric drinks blender from Waring sent the frozen daiquiri's popularity into overdrive. The ever-erudite Charles H. Baker extolled the mixer's virtues in his immensely enjoyable book Around the World with Jigger, Beaker and Flask. For cooling daiquiris, gin fizzes, making grenadine juice from pomegranates, for a dozen and one unexpected uses, we find this daft gadget indispensable. If this slight pion of appreciation and gratitude to Mr. Waring for his aid to the mixing profession should make even one person beat a trail toward him seeking his march-up, that result is amply deserved. Even Constantino was not immune to the convenience of the new gadget. La Floridita became known as La Cathedral del Daiquiri, the Temple of the Daiquiri, and Rigolera as the Cocktail King, El Rey de los Coteleros. The title was indeed well deserved. His limes were gently squeezed with his fingers lest even a drop of the bitter oil from the peel get into the drink. The cocktails were mixed but never overmixed in a wearing blender. The stinging cold drink was strained for a fine sieve into the glass so that not one tiny piece of ice remained in it. No smallest detail was overlooked in achieving the flawless perfection of the drink. That was from David Embry, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks in 1948. Though Mr. Embry may have misunderstood quite why Constantino was so insistent on squeezing his limes by hand, contrary to what he stated above, none other than Victor Bergeron, better known as Tiki Bar Pioneer Trader Vic, believed that it was the presence of the oils from the lime pills which elevated the daiquiris in La Floridita. I went down to Havana 20 years ago to watch this fellow Constantino make these daiquiris. He had a big pile of limes before him, and whether he was making a daiquiri for one person or a hundred people, it made no difference in his care. He picked out each individual lime, cut it with a knife and squeezed with his fingers to make the drink. I went home and made the drink exactly the way Constantino did, I thought, but my drink didn't taste right. Years later, when we opened our bar in Havana, I went down to Constantino's bar again. He made the drink again, and again it had that same wonderful flavour I had remembered. I went to our bar and made the drink, and again my daiquiri didn't taste anything like Constantino's. That night, I lay in bed and thought and thought about that drink. I imagined myself working beside Constantino and making the drink, stage by stage, following every movement of Constantino's hands. And then I stumbled onto what made the difference. I had used a squeezer to squeeze the lime juice, and Constantino used his fingers. By using his fingers, he got the oil of the lime into the drink, and that was just enough of the oil of the lime to give the drink his wonderful bouquet. I went down to my bar the next day and made a La Florida daiquiri that turned out to be exactly like Constantino's. That was from Victor Bergeron's Trader Vic's Bartender's Guide of 1972. The arrival of the electric blender also ushered in the era of the frozen flavoured daiquiri, and particularly desirous were the peach or strawberry daiquiris introduced at New York's Stork Club in 1940. At the same time, Lucius Beebe of the Stork Club explained how the affordable 
and lightly flavoured Cuban rum appealed to the masses, especially when blended with fruit and sugar, and how clever marketing targeted the drink at wealthy travellers and tourists who had previously discovered it themselves on their travels. With the products first being launched in New York and other centres of style, sophistication and manners, they also certainly helped drive the popularity of the drink. In the 1960s, the daiquiri became synonymous with John F. Kennedy's Camelot years. While Kennedy rarely had more than one or two himself, aboard Air Force One daiquiris would often flow somewhat more freely, and though he did not verbalise his disapproval, a knowing look was sometimes employed to discourage those who were overly enthusiastic in their consumption. His wife Jackie Kennedy too was fond of the occasional daiquiri, particularly during their summer gatherings in Cape Cod. She even provided a unique recipe for her preferred daiquiri for the staff to follow, a blended mix composed of two parts rum, two parts frozen limeade, one part fresh lime juice and a dash of velvet for Lernum. In 1975, Ed Clamar, part owner of Indiana's Wolfendale's Bar and owner of another company marketing ice cream slush and frozen yogurt machines, was looking for something different to serve at a Christmas party. So I fooled around with mixes and the machine for several hours until I came up with a frozen pink daiquiri. The drink proved such a hit at the party that Clamar, spotting an opportunity, set about commercialising. The drink proved such a hit at the party that Clamar spotted an opportunity and set about commercialising it. His barmate machine would look familiar to anyone who has ever visited the daiquiri shops of New Orleans, a rotating drum of brightly coloured slush resembling a diminutive washing machine. Frozen drinks used to be served in some restaurants but never in bars because they took too long to make. When bartenders are busy, they don't have time to get ice, add flavouring, add liquor and then mix it. But with this system, all they have to do is introduce the liquor. I think it should do well throughout the country and elsewhere, Clamar prophesied at the time and he was not wrong. Louisiana in particular embraced the frozen daiquiri machine. The last hero of our piece is the maverick entrepreneur David Irvin, who in 1982 secured a $20,000 loan and even to the surprise of his closest friends, successfully opened America's first drive-through daiquiri shop. Though due to a typo on his sign, it was initially christened a drive-through daiquiri shop. It was an extraordinarily irresponsible idea, but one he got away with and profited from greatly. At the height of his success, Irvin took $100,000 a week across his four outlets. Like those peddled from the daiquiri bars of New Orleans French Quarter today, the drinks Irvin sold bore little or no resemblance to the frozen daiquiris of Constantino's day. Indeed, Irvin once stated, I've got to have at least 15 flavours, and explained how he played around and created a frozen vodka and coke, a frozen whiskey sour, and a frozen Tom Collins, but stuck for what to call his creations, the names Frosty and Slushy already having been taken, he settled on daiquiri. I was trying to think of something that suggested sensuality, and the word daiquiri just sounded sexy. In the modern era, the daiquiri has retreated to something like a well-shaken and strained version of Jennings Cox's original drink. The frozen daiquiri still has its advocates and fans, and of course, when a frozen strawberry daiquiri is laid in a glass alongside a pina colada, it creates the Miami Vice, a Franken cocktail of the highest regard. But generally in the better bars these days, a daiquiri is a simple drink, unadorned, unfussy, and made well, 
one of the greater pleasures in the world. Some notes on mixing the daiquiri. Proportion is key when mixing a good daiquiri. As David Embry put it, so far as I can ascertain, there are two reasons why more daiquiris are not sold. The use of inferior rums and the use of improper proportions. He did then go on to recommend a daiquiri consisting of eight parts rum, two parts lime and one part sugar, which is uh, not a ratio that many agree with today, but his point is still pertinent. I've never found Constantino's practice of squeezing the limes by finger to be practical, but certainly a daiquiri is the one reason you should keep a Mexican elbow on your bar, if we are still calling them that. Lime juice, as fresh as possible, is essential for the daiquiri. Careful measurement of all ingredients is also key. And handily, I find these days that the small limes worth and get in England contain about 25 mils of juice, or one daiquiri's worth. It's also important to shake the bejesus out of a daiquiri. I use a combination of whole and crushed ice and pack the shaker as full as is practicable and shake it till one's hands hurt, then strain it into a frozen glass through a fine strainer. To mimic Constantino's lime oil rich daiquiris of yore, the so-called regal shake can be employed, whereby a small twist of lime zest is placed into the shaker before shaking. 